You are listening to The Arrived Podcast, episode number 24. Hey, gents, this is Bethany Reed Peterson of Atelier Reed, and you are listening to Arrived, the podcast dedicated to helping single guys bring their A-game home. In the show, we're going to deep dive and get real on how you guys can better host your mates, impress your dates, and crush your goals, all by making simple changes to your space and your habits. So if you want to come home knowing you've arrived, join me. Are you ready, gents? Let's do this. Hey, gents. Show of hands, how often have you been shopping online or looking through a catalog or been in store shopping for furniture and stop to think about who that designer was that is crafting that dining table that you're about to buy or who took the time to create that lounge chair that you're, you might be sampling and sitting in at this very moment. One of my favorite furniture retailers, CB2, I think does a really great job of featuring their, for lack of a better word, in-house designers. And after a, a few months of getting their catalogs and really just feeling like they were hitting home runs with every single catalog, every single piece looks so cool, I realized that all design roads, so to speak, led back to my guest on the show today. Caleb Zipperer. Caleb is a New York City-based industrial designer who actually, by day, designs bespoke furniture for luxury design studio Alexander Champali mode. It's by night that Caleb designs for CB2 under the moniker Zipperer Studio, his studio that he set up in Brooklyn in 2010 to create and prototype furniture for various retailers. Caleb's pieces have been exhibited at Salon Art and Design Show in New York and the International Contemporary Furniture Fair, amongst others. And his work has been featured in Architectural Digest, Dezine, The Rob Report, Dwell, Surface, and even New York Magazine. I knew I had to get this man on the show. I knew I wanted to bring his creative process to you guys and to help you learn a little bit more about the whole creative scope behind furniture design. I just didn't know at that time what an impactful personal story that Caleb also has to share. It's a story that is, dare I say, eerily timely with all that the world is experiencing right now with this coronavirus pandemic. It bespeaks a sense of endurance that I think we all need right now. We all need a bit of motivation to be resilient, to endure this collective moment in everyone's lives. I'm very humbled and very honored to bring Caleb's story to you. And I'm really excited to, of course, chat about his design process as well and his work with CB2. So as ever, let's crack on speaking with Caleb. Caleb, thank you so much for coming on to Arrived today. It is my absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Wow, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. I'm so excited to chat with you because I've been actually and very unknowingly following you and your work for quite some time now. Any listener of the show knows what a fan of CB2 I am. I feel like this brand is killing it. They are bringing their A-game to every single piece that they create. And I actually look forward to getting their catalogs 
every month. So I digress on this, but <laughs> it wasn't actually until I went on to their website recently to look at one of the dining tables that I fell in love with, um, which I think was actually on the cover of the catalog. And I found your name because CB2 credits the designers who collaborate with them, which as an aside, I think is just wonderful. So it was here that I realized that pretty much every single piece that I love within CB2's lines was designed by you, Caleb. Oh, <laughs> I appreciate it. So after we had our initial, what I call pre-pod chinwag, where we talked about what we're going to talk about on the show, you sent me this email, which was incredible. And if you're up for it, maybe we can chat a bit about what you'd written here and about your story and share that with the listeners. What do you say? Yeah, for some reason, I don't know. I was just like, I was feeling like, you know, maybe this is my chance. Excellent. I'm so excited to help you share your story. But firstly, let's dive in here with your work. You are a furniture and an industrial designer, and you've also worked for West Elm, creating furniture for them. So maybe we can educate listeners a little bit first as to what you're doing, what those distinctions are between the different roles, and how you got your start in the industry. Sure. Well, first, I guess I should get started with like what inspired me to get started. It was um, kind of when I was a kid, I um, started to notice you know, the differences between different products. Say the Sony Walkman, for instance. Um, I kind of grew up with a modest uh, sort of environment or income raised by my grandparents. And so I didn't have a lot of great, nice things, but my friends did around me. And so I noticed that, you know, I had a, a Walkman from JCPenney that it sounded crappy, but it wasn't laid out in a systematic, organized way. But I borrowed my friend Sony Walkman. I was like, oh my God, to my delight, it sounded great. It operated great. It, all the buttons where they're supposed to be, it was just like it made sense. And so for some reason, I've always been drawn to sort of discovering uh, products as you approach them, how how they work and like who thought about it and like why it was done. And it took me years later to realize like, oh, there's a profession that sort of leads you to this sort of discipline. That was my industrial design sort of perspective. It's furniture sort of got into it from uh, 2001, it's based obviously by Stanley Kubrick. That one scene where they're kind of just landed on, you know, an outer space on that satellite and they're walking by that really cool furniture by, I think it's Olivier Mork or I don't know how to say his name. It's a, a French designer that I, you know, I love. But anyway, I was drawn to this like sort of space age, like modernistic, idealistic future. And I was like, oh, I just want to be a part of the sort of life that people are creating these like great environments and products. I think this is just fascinating. It's funny, as you were mentioning 2001, A Space Odyssey, I was thinking how I can absolutely see this in the work uh, that you do with CB2 and also with some of the prototypes for Zipperer Studio. So let's quickly back up here for a second. For anyone who isn't familiar with what an industrial designer does, what's that difference between an industrial designer and a furniture designer? Well, an industrial designer, um, kind of anything you put your hands on, someone kind of thought about it. So anything that's industrially produced is um, it's made by an industrial designer. I guess the organization of elements are put together in such a way to achieve a desired outcome based on the brief that you're given. And more or less, you're supposed to um, you know, improve or make someone's life or society better by 
doing this, having this sort of insight and thought behind the products that you uh, create. So the Sony Walkman that you mentioned was probably designed by an industrial designer, I would imagine. Oh, for sure. Which is why you were probably attracted to this field in the first place. Yeah, that, I mean, the boom boxes, there's so many things that just got me excited. But also you bring enjoyment and richness to someone's life. I think that's a beautiful part of what you're doing. You're bringing enjoyment and beauty into someone's life. I have so much respect for you, Caleb. Oh, thank you. I know that you're working at Alexander Champalimo during the day, which for anyone who's not familiar with their work, it's very high-end, beautiful, bespoke, deep custom work that I know you get to work on as a furniture designer. It's my playing ground, actually. You know, I love it. <laughs> yes. And by night, you have your own studio and you've collaborated with CB2, like we were just saying. And you're also working as an engineer with West Elm, is that right? Exactly. For them, basically engineered the way the furniture was made for manufacturing. So I would be given a drawing from a designer and I have to like make it realistically producible in a factory setting. That's a really interesting distinction between what you're doing as a designer now and as an engineer prior. I think that when we go shopping, whether it's to CB2 or to West Elm or wherever we might go, we're not necessarily thinking of the person that was behind that design and the person that was behind that engineering process. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yes, and I think that's really fascinating. Oh, totally. I think that is something that is forgotten about. It's that to, to get to the customer, someone has to sort of go through it to make sure it could be made in a way that could be safe to produce. And I actually, I did... um. I work for Potty Barn Kids as well, which is under the Williams-Sonoma branch in West Elm. So my career with West Elm started from Potty Barn Kids where I was engineering cribs to be produced and manufactured. That was safe, you know, so no one would get hurt. And which led me get to West Elm to, you know, touch those sort of things uh, that would get produced and manufactured for everyone. So you were an engineer for quite some time and now you're a designer. Let's talk a little bit about your creative process because again I think that's not something that we as consumers are necessarily thinking about when we shop for furniture that designer and the ideation behind that piece and behind that design so how do you get inspired and how do you approach a creative project I think just recently in my career that I've started to to understand that there's some sort of authorship that that's important to make a successful product. And I'm, I'm just starting to see that with my success with the products that CB2 are picking up from me. But to get to that point, someone would give you a brief and it could be design a chair, design a table. And I want it to, you know, sort of be this, uh, this aesthetic of being from Italy in the 60s or, you know, could be like a disco modern thing or, you know, who's who knows what, but to really connect with someone, you need to go beyond those sort of cliches and like find something in yourself and bring a little of that to the table. And I feel like that's the most important part of design is like trying to figure out whatever that that is. But to get there, you need to like have this other world where you, you know, you're looking around you observing your environment, constantly cataloging um, every little thing that you see. Like I, I live in New York City in Brooklyn and, you know, I go to work in downtown Manhattan and it's just full of with these beautiful buildings and corporate sculptures every corner I look at you know bricks and facades and just like why did they do it this way it's just just a matrix of uh, concepts and ideas out there that we're surrounded by and all that sort of intertwined I think in my thoughts I like try to pull some of that energy into what I do but just trying to find out 
you know, based on what your brief is, like where to go to look for that inspiration is like the hardest thing to do. And sometimes, you know, you do get stuck, but like when I'm stuck, I'm tired of looking at Pinterest boards and like chairs that are Italian and century. So I turn the computer off and I, I take a walk and I just let my mind soar. That's basically how I work, honestly. And then from there, I'll start sketching. Lots of sketches. Sometimes it's a day, sometimes it's a week of one table. At my desk at work and I have like notebooks. I go through, I don't know, four months and I have this huge stack. And it's just a source of inspiration. Me just looking over it, all my sketchbooks that I've filled, you know, this is real. We're sketching, we're making things here. And it's, you know, it's not all done on the computer in front of us. Although I could do some, some great renderings. It's not all about that. It's about like who made it and where it came from. And it starts with the idea and the sketch. And it starts with the story, the idea, the sketch, the person behind that idea. And of course, that sketch for sure. But it's that person behind that design. And usually they like the thing that I thought least about, you know, the less time I put into it, I think usually the better because usually you overthink something that's not good from the beginning in the first place. I think that's such a wonderful point to bring up. We can overthink our creative process sometimes, whether it's a creative brief or some other avenue we're trying to approach. Uh, whether that's a problem, a solution from a new perspective. Sometimes we need to take a step back from our desk. We need to go outside. We need to just be in harmony with nature or just even get off Pinterest boards for a while. I mean, as amazing as Pinterest is, and I use it too. But to really think about how something else was crafted. And sometimes your best ideas do come straight away, like you say. And sometimes we white knuckle things and actually that 10th idea wasn't necessarily the best idea. Maybe it was that first idea or that second idea. So I think from a creative approach, that's really an important point to make. And speaking of the story behind the design or the story behind the idea or the sketch or the design, let's dive a little deeper here. Let's talk about what led you to design school and those hurdles that you overcame to get to this place in your life. When I read that story in the email that you'd sent me, I was really blown away and I would love for listenership to know who that person is or was in that point in your life and all that you've achieved to get to where you are now. This is so fascinating to me. So let's talk about what led you to design school i guess what led me to go to design school in the first place is kind of just wanting to make, have a better life because i kind of came from my mother had five or five brothers and sisters and only one of them went to college and so i kind of came from a family that you know no one went to college um, i never met my father my mother never went to college um, i was pretty much raised by my grandparents and kind of being raised in that environment i just I don't know, in Savannah, Georgia, I just realized that, I don't know, I want to make something of myself. And so when I was young, I tried to, I started out as thinking that I should be a, um, an engineer because I kind of took everything apart. We're, we live near a local landfill and it's not, it's a place that people who had like too much junk, they would go drop off like their bicycles or their televisions. Like, you know, there's stuff that they wanted to fill in this land. But at night I would go there, it was like my play playground. I'd go there and I would grab things and bring them home. And I would collect things that were like 
you know, interesting or well-made or beautiful in some way. And I started taking them apart to figure it out. And I was like, I had this sort of inkling to sort of get to the root of like everything. Like, where did this come from? Why is it here? How, how is it made? But I was also, I think, discovering myself at the same time, which is like, cause I never met my father. Like, I don't know, I feel like this thing in my life that sort of affected me, but I don't really talk about it. Trying to get a sense of where I come from. I think I'm still like on that journey, but anyway, just being brought up in that environment just kind of led me to like, I don't know, I need to go to school. I want to make something of myself, but you know, I started out with the community college as a um, engineering night prep course to go to Georgia Tech. Tried it for a little bit. I hated, I hated working with engineers that are so pragmatic and like, I don't know, very smarter than me. I felt that way just because I had a terrible public education, you know, and you know, education wasn't my foreground of like, I don't know. I just wanted to go outside and play when I was a kid. Like my household was kind of chaotic. There was lots of drinking and partying and no really supervision. We got to go out and be kids and I loved it. But at the same time, like it was a scary place. And so anyway, I found out community college wasn't for me. Engineering wasn't for me. And so I moved to New York, uh, became like a, a bike messenger and I was inspired so much by the city. And so I got introduced to design in a, in a, a deeper level there. Um, I discovered Brancusi. There was this like Brancusi exhibit, the MoMA. I remember my off days, it's like Thursday and Fridays. It was the free museum days that you, you could go to the museums and pay what you could. And so I got exposed to art for the first time being in New York City. And anyway, I gave New York City a spin, you know, for about a year. But what had happened when I was here, uh, I got sick. I got very sick. Um, so I went to Savannah and just to visit my uncle who was also in the hospital. He was, um, he had a stroke. I was down there, my aunt's a nurse, and she looked at me, and I told her I had problems swallowing. Um, I was just not feeling well, but I looked fine, you know? I don't know, I was 22. But anyway, it turned out that I had Hodgkin's disease, which I've never heard of before, and no one in my family had a history of it. Anyway, I had to move from New York City, which I moved out there by myself. I think I had $450, I had a Volkswagen bus, I rebuilt my motor, like I did everything I could just to move to New York. Tried it, made it, made it enough, but wasn't able to do it. I moved back to Savannah um, with my grandparents and they sort of helped me a little bit. I was going, I had two options. I could go through radiation or I could go through chemo. I was 22. I didn't want to take the long route, which is the chemotherapy. I wanted to take the radiation route because it was quick. They said I could do it in like nine months and be back on my feet. And so I did that. And what I had found out as I finished, everything was good again. I was kind of on my feet. I had moved out of my grandparents' home again. Moved to downtown Savannah. It's the second time I've moved out the house and uh, sort of reestablished myself. So I got into a band, I played music in Savannah, and so I got reintroduced to being a human again. And all my friends were in art school, I was not, but I found out that, you know, I wanted to apply to school, I figured that out. But at the same time, when I was about to start, I, I found out that my cancer had come back, and so I had to go through treatments again. And so this time it was going to be chemotherapy, it was going to be hard. And so I decided just to. You know, I had nothing else to lose. I was living by myself, sort of uh, paying, paying everything for myself, working four days a week, five days a week at a cafe, and I wasn't gonna give up now. And after all of this, so I decided to just stay in school, keep my job, and just go about it, and I think being strong. I think uh, just having a sense of purpose and will sort of helped me beat everything. 20 years ago now, I've been in remission. They, they say I'm cured. It's, like after 10 years, they, um, they say that you're cured. And so I feel like, I've moved on from that in my life. I don't really talk about with anyone. I, I never let that define me. I never really talk about it in my jobs. When I have a new job, I never have brought up because I never wanted that to be a part of like, part of my history of like, 
how I came to be, but you know, it does become evident as you, you know, you asked me what my age was. I'm such a late starter in life. I graduated college when I was 28 and I've been working for 18 years now. And finally, I feel like I have a sense of like where I want to be, but I feel like I'm just like halfway there now. And I kind of own that path now, which I'm so thankful for, but I'm glad I'm able to share it a little bit with you. Thank you. Caleb, thank you so much for sharing this with me today, sharing this with listenership. I can only, I suppose, just appreciate how hard it must be to discuss, how hard it must have been to go through that process, not once, but twice. It is an incredible, incredible story. And I, I'm just speechless. I think that for you to have been diagnosed with this once (laughs) and then to decide that you're going to make a go of it again with art school and then come back down to Savannah. I do know how intensive art school and art training is and especially at a college like Savannah College of Art and Design like SCAD. It's a wonderful school. It's however very rigorous and they demand a lot of their students. So that alone is such an intense experience. But then of course if you add on top of that battling Hodgkins a second time all the while you're paying your tuition by working in a restaurant and like hustling in this very physical work four to five days a week and going through chemotherapy and getting your school done. Basically just showing up every single day is what you did for this entire time in every aspect of your life. I'm just shocked by this. And I think how many of us say that we want something and the second it gets difficult, we bail. And I think that that is why your story is so incredible to me, not only because you beat Hodgkins twice, but because you said to yourself, I don't care what it takes. I'm doing this because this is what I want. And that just gives me goosebumps. I I got goosebumps when I read the email. I, I got goosebumps just now listening to you tell this. So if you don't mind me sharing in your email about not being sure whether you should share your story because you didn't want to be known or you didn't want this to be like a defining characteristic in your life or you didn't want to bring any sense of drama to listenership. I have to say that that's really fascinating because we are taught that we shouldn't talk about these things. And men, I think, especially are taught that they need to be strong at all costs, even when they're facing something as life-changing, shall we say, as what you've experienced with Hodgkins, that they shouldn't talk about this experience in their life. Guys, I just have to say, whoever is listening right now, there are so many takeaways to Caleb's story. And I would really encourage anyone who is out there who has just listened to this story to think about the fact that we can go through anything. I know how ironic it is to bring this story to you all right now. I know it's a really, really intense time right now in everyone's lives because we're all stuck at home dealing with the fallout of coronavirus. We don't know what's happening economically, but how can we think about setting our goals and sticking to those goals no matter what is thrown at us? Powering through your life and like keeping your 
eye on the goal of what you want to be and not giving up because um, so much of my career, I'd say the past 12 years of it or more has been me doing something that I like to do, but it wasn't, it was doing it for other people, creating their products for them. And just recently I've been able to create products that I've designed for my, well, not for myself, but create products that I designed and that are out there in the world now. And I'm proud of it, but it's taken me, you know, the majority of my career to get to this point. And I hope that, you know, other people, your listeners out there know that that options out there too. It might be tough. You might have to make that hard decision in life to take the job that's not what you want, but it gives you a better salary to put you in a position later in life to set you up. So eventually that you'll be able to get where you want to be and just always know that you have that, that option in life just because you have an immediate setback, which we might have now, that it's not going to be the end. Like You can make a change and you can go back to school later and you can become whatever it is that you want to be. You just have to find it in yourself to do it. Absolutely. I think that is so well put. I think that you are making such wonderful contributions to the world. I think you're doing amazing things. I love that you're bringing beauty into our homes every day. And I love that you're able to reach so many people with your amazing work and your amazing designs. Thank you. It's taken so long, but I really appreciate it. If you will allow me to, considering so many of us right now are really kind of panicked and really uncertain about where things are headed, maybe we talk a little bit more about how you handled all this stress in your own life when you were low energy, let's say when you were going through Hodgkin's, there had to been a point, especially during this time where it was so tough. I'm wondering, what did you do when everything was up in the air? When you were working at the restaurant, when you were attending school, how did you get through that personally, or perhaps mentally? And what advice would you offer listeners out there who are similarly thinking right now? I don't know how much more of this I can endure. I don't know if it's safe advice, but like for me, I felt I just I couldn't give up. I didn't want to stop. I feel like by moving was a source of, uh, I don't know, of me just not remembering my current situation. It just kept me, just kept it in the background. I guess it was just a bad thing, <laughs> but it's a good thing just because it just keeps you moving forward to achieve some sort of goal. That way, whatever you're doing, you can finish it rather than just like stop and retreating and let your emotions overtake you. It's easy just to like pretend everything's normal, although it's not, you know, you know it's not, but you're doing everything you can possibly just to function in a life that you want to have so bad. I also had great friends and the cafe that I worked at, everyone shaved their heads. Like, it was just a great environment. I was really lucky. Oh, wow. That's incredible. The environment I was in just is really incredible. Great friends and great people. And, you know, all the teachers that I had too, you know, I, I let them know what I was going through just so they were okay with it. But, you know, that was an issue at all, you know. I love that you had this support system uh, within your coworkers at the restaurant. I love that you reached out to your teachers and you were vocal and you were communicative with them. And I think that's a really wonderful takeaway for anyone who is listening right now as well, that 
even though we are quarantined in our homes and we might be feeling alone, we're actually not alone. So we need to reach out to our support networks. We need to reach out to our friends. We need to reach out to our colleagues. We need to just maintain a sense of connection and really let others know how we're feeling, what we're going through so that we can all support each other. So I love that you did reach out and have that supportive framework. My fingers are crossed that everything's going to be fine, but I know it's going to be rough for everyone. I feel like we have no other option but to just, just go out there and do it and make it better and you know, be polite to everyone and do the best we can to get through it. I know, just like the rest of us, you are also stuck at home right now. Maybe we talk a little bit about what your own home looks like. How have you set up your own space to accommodate your creative thinking? So basically my house is like a testing field of all the prototypes I made when I had my studio when I worked at West Elm. I like, I sold many things when I worked there, or not a lot, but I sold some things, but most of the things that I produced were made for trade shows and I, they're prototypes and my house is decorated with them. Uh, and I have a hard time like getting rid of them. And so I don't have room to buy new furniture. I have a hard time. You know, I have a bed from Blue Dot and I have a couple things, you know, from DWR, but most of our house is things that I made. We got our daughter, but before her, my, our house was more or less a tree forest, my wife would say. So it was just like, it was just chairs galore, you know, and benches and just furniture that I would find at flea markets and stuff. And now it's sort of, it's pared down to be a, a, a baby zone, but also like, I don't know, a creative like zone of like my furniture, my white space too. She has like her own element here that sort of adds a softness to it. I feel like my, my aesthetic needs to be updated internally at my house because uh, I've developed a little farther in my life than where I used to be. It's so funny. I actually hadn't even thought about that. Your wife's influence, for example, and lending that sense of softness maybe to your designs and to your home more generally. That happened to me with my uh, working with Alexandra too. And like, I feel like my whole life has been surrounded by very powerful women, you know, to my credit. I don't know, I really like it. It's empowered me, but it's also given me this thing that, you know, I used to not have, but I sort of realized now that it's very important in design in general is that you can't have this harshness. It needs to like kind of speak to everybody, but it needs to have this like soft, like beautiful, you know, chic quality to it that, you know, that I didn't have before. I love that you feel that you have this feminine influence maybe on a level and that you can collaborate so to speak with your wife um, who presumably already has this amazing eye because she's an art critic so she can give you this constructive feedback and possibly constructive criticism and you're so motivated to make your work and your designs even better exactly i don't give up (laughs) (laughs) yes I sometimes think no matter who it's coming from, when we get constructive criticism, we can often recoil from that and get defensive instead of thinking of, ooh, how could I make this better? How could I pivot this design to make it even grander or even more functional? Well, what I've learned is like it kind of, it's really hard as a designer. It's still hard for me, but it's sort of let yourself go a little bit and put things out there that you don't really know about. Like, ah, I like this, but you don't know why you like it. And sometimes, you know, it really resonates with other people. So I think you have to set yourself up not to be scared of what you're doing. Okay, this is wild. I know it is like my new things at CB2. That was wild. It's crazy. But, you know, it's like it comes from me and, you know, it connects with other people. And it's like, you know, trying to find that that happy medium of understanding what all that means. 
Well, this is the thing. We need your work, Caleb. We need your designs and the designs of every other artist out there, especially right now. I see such amazing progressive design coming out of Europe and coming out of London and in the UK where I used to live. But I think that a lot of accessible American furniture design can tend to be very pedestrian. It can be very prosaic because in actuality, while we think that or what I suppose a lot of furniture manufacturers think what they're doing is catering to what the general masses want, what we're not actually doing is showing the American market that great design can live in the unfamiliar. We're not showing the American market that we can challenge the status quo. Yeah. And that's why in my estimation, actually, what CB2 is doing right now is is incredible because it's bringing experimental forms and shapes and line and geometry to its designs. We need designers such as yourself to push the limits and to educate everyday consumers that actually you can have a dining table that is a bit of sculpture. It's artistic. It doesn't have to look like your neighbor's or your friend's dining set, right? Like it can be a sculpture unto itself. And actually on this point, because I am such a huge fan of two of your dining tables, maybe you can help explain your inspiration behind those two pieces. One of them is the Rocco marble dining table and the other is the stone based table. For for the um the dining table, the Rocco dining table, um I had gone to Brazil, to Rio. For some reason I'm infatuated with Brazil. I don't know why. I love I love the music, but I also just love the culture, the excitement, the colors. I don't know, there's something there. Anyway, I went there for my honeymoon with my wife and I fell in love with um, Mr. Oscar Neumeyer. His architecture is everywhere and sort of came infatuated with this sort of uh, international design that of that period that's Brazilian. It's like these sharp angles and concrete. But his stuff was very sculptural, you know? And so I was looking at the sculptural elements of his work when I was there and I did some research and I, that was the source of inspiration I drew. It was like these arches that I wanted to connect, but somehow I wanted to, you know, put that in my table base. And that's what I used. It was one of his, one of his buildings, actually. It's so architectural and you can really actually see. So now hearing this story, I can actually really see exactly how that inspiration came in to form within the design of this dining table. That's that connection. <laughs> so very quickly for listeners who aren't familiar yet with this piece, this is a very masculine black merino marble table and base with beautiful brass rod detailing at the table leg. And again, going back to our chat on adding moments of the feminine in your work, what really strikes me in this table, even though it is very brutalist, it is very masculine, that the curvature uh, with inside or within the leg and the simple brass detailing really soften this otherwise very brutalist piece and really add another layer of almost feminine dimension and balance to it. And just a quick note for listeners, I will add to the show notes, Caleb's dining tables, all of my favorite pieces. I'm actually going to do a curated selection of my favorite pieces that Caleb has designed. So be sure you hit the show notes this week. Go to atelierreadcom slash 24 to see exactly what we're talking about with all of Caleb's work. 
So guys, when you're shopping for furniture, look for pieces that are really inspirational to you, pieces that really stand out to you or draw a, um, let's say an emotional reaction from you when you see them, just like a piece of art in a museum would. You can think that same way when you're shopping for furniture. How does it stand out to you? So Caleb, the other piece that I'm just in love with, <laughs> like I mentioned before, is the stone base table. Tell me the story behind that piece. And again, guys, I will add this to the show notes as well so you can see it later on. Oh, it's kind of funny, um, you know, with my daughter in the winter and what have you in New York City, we, we run out of things to do. And she knows I have this book called Tiki Modernism. It's this cool book by Tashin. Anyway, we flipped through it together. She's like, oh, that's a tiki monster. I was like, oh, you know what? We should go check out the Metropolitan Museum of Art and go to the Oceanic Art Exhibit that's there. You can go there and kind of see this this cool, like, sculptural stuff. You know, Oceana back in the day. All these carvings and, like, primitive furniture and sculptures and statues. And so I took my daughter there. She loved it. We took pictures. To get to the inspiration story, it has to do with that sort of, like, that primitivism of, of where we come from, but also the forms of that, of kind of being generic, but like round and need a function. It's like, I need a table. So I'm gonna just have two stones and a top and that's it. And that's my table. And that's kind of what I was going for is this primitive table that, you know, not, not much thought went into it. It's just basically like two pedestals and a top and that's it. You know, of course I had to go in and finesse everything and add these architectural details on the top to make the glass work. That's where it came from. It had to do with the trip to the Met with my daughter and thinking about tiki modernism and primitivism. It makes so much sense, of course, now why the table looks like it does, right? So you mentioned primitivism. And when I look at this stone-based table, which literally just looks like it's a very simple form of, of glass, uh, glass tabletop and uh, you know two stone bases or one stone base depending upon which size you have that sense of primitivism actually really shines through in the design it's so simple and yet there's something so elegant and refined and minimalist beautifully minimalist about it and it's just a gorgeous piece so oh, thank you I feel like Caleb I need to figure out a way to get two dining rooms <laughs> <laughs> I need an apartment that I can fit one of the tables in <laughs> myself. But isn't that so interesting, going back to what you'd said earlier about how sometimes the first spark of an idea is the best one, and sometimes not overthinking it, not overdrawing it, or spending a terrible amount of time problem solving or creating is the best solution. It's the best idea. It's the best way forward. And equally, not sitting around on your laptop. Instead, you know, this, this, like you mentioned, this table was inspired by a trip to the Met with your daughter. So I, I guess just at that point that you're saying, though, it's just so funny that you, I feel like a designer could save so much time in life. I struggle with it because I'm so driven and motivated to make something work no matter what. And so to be able to turn that like, that bad idea off and not like work on it, making it work. Like you could save so much time if you know how to turn that idea off to flip to a new concept, you know, but it's a constant thing to unbalance. But sometimes you're very lucky and successful and that one that works out, you know, but just to get to that point to know when to leave it alone, it's just so hard to do. Let's talk a little bit about Zipper Studio, which is your baby. Are you selling work to the public at the moment? I am not selling work to the public. I. I think down the road that, that'd be my goal, but right now I'm happy with the balance of my my day job, which creates 
let, allows me to sort of explore my own personal like authorship. Um, I, li I like kind of creating uh, for CB2 too because of the responsibilities as a designer. It's, I'm able to be creative and send it to someone else to produce and there's no, um, there's no headache of producing and getting to the customer, which I prefer nowadays to have a sort of a design consultancy where I'm designing by commission and producing it and the headaches of like paying for samples, making samples, uh, being responsible if someone doesn't get somewhere or someone gets hurt, like all that legal, those issues I, I don't have, which I'm very thankful that I don't right now. If we're talking about that full service bespoke model of interior design, that's a huge level of investment for clients. It's a huge level of responsibility for you, like you mentioned, and also for uh, an interior designer such as myself. So what you're saying here really highlights why design is so expensive at that level, because so many of the processes and so many of the considerations are involved in creating a bespoke piece or a bespoke interior. There can be so much red tape involved, and depending upon what you're designing or creating, it can just be a real nightmare, like you say. I mean, it's a worthwhile nightmare, but it can be a lot, right? So it must be nice to create these prototypes, but know then that someone else like CB2, for example, has the ability to figure out the manufacturing process, handle all of the specifications of that piece, and is able on top of that to produce the piece in a way that is accessible and scalable to a much larger market. Exactly. Bespoke design is unfortunately still reserved for only the most affluent who can invest in all of the back and forth red tape like you mentioned, or even simply, let's say the time for the modeling and the prototyping that is involved from a designer such as yourself in creating this custom one-off piece or or bespoke design that's true when i started industrial design i thought like i don't know i was going to make a better society and a better world which you know i do want to you know accomplish one day or help to like contribute to but now i feel like in an idealistic world like it's just nice for everyone to have good design and appreciate the things they have no matter what their costs are i think it's important for people just to understand that you can get a, a sense of enjoyment out of anything. It could be your favorite number two pencil, your Ticonderoga, or, you know, your your big ballpoint pen, your cheap one, or your, you know, your $5 pen. Who knows what it is? All these things are produced and thought, and they give you the satisfaction. It's exciting to, to be able to have your name out there in the world to the masses, as you said. It's just, it's really, it's nice to see that you've contributed and also made it just a little bit better. But it's also nice, you know, for these few who can afford it to be able to explore and give them something that's just their own and it's your own too. So it's nice, like you said, to have both worlds. We need these big clients or we need these clients that have these unrestricted budgets because it allows for you, let's say, as a designer to really play and to really dream and imagine. Exactly. So what's next for you and what's next for Zipper Studio? You know, I, I think what I would like, you know, to be represented by a New York gallery or a European gallery, like, you know, RM Company or something like uh, David Gill or like, you know, any of these like great galleries. I, don't, I think that'd be like ideal life, you know, and also to have like a private 
studio setup where I'm actually like, you know, making things again with my hands. I think when I was a child, I always wanted to be a sculptor. And I think that once I'm done with my bespoke art furniture and my commercial career, that I like, maybe I should be an, an artist and do corporate sculpture or something. I just being a bike messenger back in the day, riding around New York City. I just, I love these these gigantic things that were out in front on the streets that people just got to enjoy. I don't know if everyone else enjoys them because sometimes it's, you know, it serves a purpose. It's like a, a tax deduction or whatnot. But for me, like I work across, I work across the street from um, an Aguti. It's like the red cube. It's one of his like unfamous things, but it's like across the street from my work. And I like, just be surrounded by those things. It's, it's just so iconic and cool. And I don't know, I would love to be able to leave an imprint like that somehow on the world where I have like this thing that's out there that's mine. And uh, Henry Moore is like another guy that I really love. I would love to go in that direction in my life. But also I think by having a, um, a private studio one day that has my name on it and I'm able to kind of live in both worlds. Where I'm represented by a gallery, but I'm also, you know, producing work commercially on a commission basis and, you know, have a, a small staff and I'm able to inspire and sort of mentor other people. Yes, I knew it. I love your big goals and visions. One day we're going to see a big sculpture and a sculpture garden that's yours. I love your ideas of mentorship and helping out other designers who are coming up through the ranks and yes maybe even some gallery representation all of these things are in your future Caleb I love this so guys please go online have a look at Caleb's work within CB2 and consider adding a piece of his to your own home and once again guys I'm going to put all of Caleb's info into the show notes speaking of which Caleb, where can they find you if they want to learn more about Zipper Studio and more about your creative process? At zipperstudio.com. That's my website. So there's that. And then also my Instagram. It's just Caleb Zipperer that I, I probably most most active on right now. Caleb, it's been so fun to speak to you today. I feel like I could just talk to you all day long about your design process and your inspiration and your stories. You brought something out of me that, you know, I'm, I'm excited that you uh, connected with me and got me to be able to, to talk a little bit about myself because it's, I don't know, it's got me motivated in this time, this dire times of like, you know what, I've been through rough times, like, we're all going to get through this together somehow. Yes, well, we're all connected, right? And isn't it interesting, I never would have met you if it hadn't been for me being so inspired by your work and finding you and like basically design stalking you, right, for however long. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's not easy. Like, you know, I'm not out there. So I really, you, had, you did some work. I appreciate it. <laughs> so, Caleb, finally, what is one thing that the gents out there can do to come home or be at home right now knowing they've arrived? I think being proud of what you accomplished that day, whether it be uh, your job, your task, whatever it is, your career that you're in, but also like your your place in life. You know, you got home and you're you're happy, you're motivated, and the next day you want to do it again. That's that's how you you know that you've arrived, in my opinion. It's that it's to be proud of every day when you come home and knowing that you're proud and you want to go back and do it again, that you're so excited about it. And that's how I feel every day. I love, love, love this arrived tip to live your life every single day and just be proud of it and live your life with intention, with discipline and integrity and be proud of what you're creating and be proud of where you've come and what you've accomplished and what you've gone through. So I love this Arrive tip. Caleb, thank you so very much for coming on to Arrive today. It has not only been a pleasure 
to chat with you, but it has been my absolute honor to help you share your story and get it out to the world. So thank you so very much for joining me on Arrive today. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. If you are enjoying the Arrived podcast and you think other guys out there will too, I would love nothing more than to get your feedback and for you to please leave a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can do it from your phone. It's super simple. Just search my show there, subscribe, and click write a review at the bottom in the ratings and review section. For full instructions, you can also go to my website, atelierreed.com slash podcast slash review. I want to hear from you guys and I want you to tell me more about how I can help you come home feeling like you've arrived. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Arrived. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast and your space is feeling a little more like a crash pad than a home, not to worry. I'm here for you, gents. Join me over at atelierreed.com slash arrive to work with me one-to-one on a design action plan to help you bring your A-game home. That's A-T-E-L-I-E-R-W-R-E-D-E dot com slash arrived. So what are you waiting for? Let's do this. I'll see you next time, guys. Have a great week. Bye.